Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro, Philosophy Clock with Eche Fatum. This time we are covering the Protestant Reformation, part one. This will be a two-part series. Why did the Protestants have such a big fuss about the Catholic Church and want to break away and write down a bunch of stuff? I've wondered myself. I am a Protestant, uh, culturally speaking, and I spent 21 years of my life as one. So this is an especially exciting episode for me. Welcome, Eche Fatum. How are you doing, my sir? Doing good. How about yourself? Solid. I'm enjoying the beautiful spring days that are upon us here in Seattle amid this uh, spooky apocalypse where there are no cars on the road, but lots of people outside walking their dogs. Yeah, so many people seem to have dogs these days. Even my parents got some imaginary dogs. Wait, what does that mean? They just walked their dogs, dogs without having one. Oh. Do they hold a leash in hand? I don't think so. Oh. And I don't think they pick up when the dog has to poo. So it's smelly, but you can see it. Can you get fined for your imaginary dog shitting on the ground? <laughs> I'm not sure about it. Well, best of luck to them. You, you, I don't know what it's most like. Most probably will get fined in Singapore. Not sure about Switzerland. That's true. Undercook, overcook, fine. <laughs> so cool. What was the inspiration for going for the Protestant Reformation as our next topic? We have covered medieval philosophy, which I said has some of the groundwork of christendom in europe uh, that had a major influence on the philosophy of the region the reformation is going to be after that point what's going on with that yeah so it's kind of the continuation of medieval philosophy and how it developed um, later on so in this first part we're going to be talking about what led to the reformation what were the contributing factors what was kind of the the stage that this happened on and why people felt the need for change at the time and then we'll be talking about Lutheran's writing uh, Luther's writings and what he was thinking was wrong with the catholic church and why he wanted to change that and in part two we'll be talking about what what the effects of the Reformation was and different results that kind of came out of it, like the 30-year war. Cool. So this is medieval philosophy, as we talked about two episodes ago, was kind of the dark ages in philosophy where everything had to be centered around God and you kind of had, they were making philosophy fit the narrative of god and the reformation itself was not a cut with that tradition it was still about god but they were looking at the texts differently and were interpreting them differently and therefore had different results and what was the language that martin luther be writing in was it latin, latin. Or latin? latin yeah because that is the most sacred and holy language right well, for the Catholic Church, it used to be, or it still is. 
It's also the language that only the scribes and scholars knew at the time. Maybe some advisors to the king as well. Maybe even the king, but probably not. So not many people were able to read Latin or write in it. So there was a small amount of people that could look at the original texts and interpret them and tell people what was going on, what was God telling us to do. And this was the main or one of the main issues at the time. So basically you had the church that controlled the scripture. They were the ones interpreting what God told us and how to interpret that. And this went on from the 7th century till about the end of the 14th century, where is, uh, which is when the Reformation came about. So there's a bunch of different contributing factors that kind of led to this transformation within society that people wanted to get away from the church. So the monopoly of language was one of them, but this wasn't a concern for common people for the most part. The rise of feudalism and what this meant for the common people was a big issue at the time in Europe. So feudalism is you have feudal lords, which are kind of like kings, but usually for a smaller area, and they were owning all the land. And as a farmer, you, you were allowed to use the land to grow your crops, but then you had to give some percentage of your, um, usually 10% of your goods to the landlord. So it's basically like rent, but you had to work more for it. And they also changed the rates at times. So there was a big famine between 1315 and 1317, which caused about seven and a half million deaths in Europe. And since there's less food as a feudal lord, you obviously want to be on the safe side. So you up the taxes to 20%. So you're on the safe side and the poor farmers will starve to death. And yeah, people don't like that kind of thing for one reason or another. Yeah, starving to death, I would say, is not very high up the fun scale. Nah. Then there's other things that are not as fun. The Black Death, the, want to say, bubonic plague, was mm -hmm. the one of the main causes of death, and it was around 1350. So you had people dying from starvation, people dying from a disease they did not know how to handle at the time. And the Black Death between 1315 and it lasted up until the early 18th century caused, based on who you go about, between 30 to 60% of Europe's population to die. So there's a lot of people dying all over the place due to different reasons. And some of them are caused by feudal lords. Some of them are caused by the church and the Black Death. Yeah, you could contribute that to anyone you want to. Um, a lot of people contribute it to God and punishing us for some sin we don't know about. And this was one of the reasons that we thought, well, maybe we're doing something wrong in worshiping God. 
then there's also the holy wars that were um, conducted between the late 11th century and the late 13th century. So holy wars basically meant that a lot of Europeans gathered together and made a huge raid onto the Holy Land, um, specifically Jerusalem, and claiming that back for the Christian people. Which is not the nicest of chapters in Christianity, I guess. Yeah, I would say so. And then within Europe itself, there was the Spanish Inquisition, which no one could expect, and witch trials going on. <laughs> nice one. Um, the Spanish Inquisition uh, specifically was meant to get people from other faiths, namely Muslims and uh, Jewish people, to conform to Christian beliefs and to, to change their belief to Christianity, alongside doing some other not as nice stuff. So the 14th century was all over a really bloody, really deadly time to live in. You could either starve to death, you could die from a disease or you could get tortured to death because you were considered a witch or believing the wrong things. So it, w it wasn't a nice time to be living in. And that led to a lot of people rethinking what the world should, world should look like and how to approach different questions of morality, faith, and what to make out of it. And one of the biggest contributing factors is first technology. So due to a lot of need for changes in agriculture, for example, or for need for changes in medicine to, to deal with the Black Death, there was a, it was a time of inventing things. It was a big need for inventing things. And one of the biggest inventions of the time was the printing press, which will have a big effect on literacy all over Europe and people wanting to know how to read because books were something you could afford if you're well enough off. It had a big effect on people wanting to know how to, to read in Latin. And this was unheard of before because, as we talked about, it's only the church that kind of controlled the, the flow of language. And with more people being able to read, you have more people interested in different topics and how we could interpret different texts. I would recommend for people to think about the impact of the printing press with the context of how long it took to write a book physically write it with pen to paper but also in a way that looked nice so the scribes and the people who did that as their full-time gig would try to make it look really good as a finished product but that's a handwritten book every single time which took an enormous amount of effort compared to printing press just turning stuff out yeah printing press um like the first designs you had this metal um pieces with the different letters on it so you had to arrange them for each page it still took a lot of time so it's not comparable to a modern day printer but once you had one side of the book 
uh, ready to print you could print it a hundred a thousand a million times if you wanted to so it really streamlined the process it was still a lot of work though mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of the modern printers and how the main way they get you with the prices in the ink. <laughs> yeah. And so towards the end of the 14th century, um, there was a return to studying old Greek texts as well. So this was during the time of scholasticism. Uh, studying Greek texts was not common, was not something people would do. and. There was this rise in studying Greek texts again due to all these circumstances we talked about. And therefore there was a rise in humanism. And we'll be talking about humanism after part two of the Reformation. Um, humanism just being having a human-centric worldview rather than a God-centric worldview. And how to imply ethics that would fit that narrative more so than God telling us what to do. Um, we already talked about humanism in other parts of the world, um, basically Buddha's philosophy as well as Confucius and Lao Tzu, all of these are humanist or human-centric models of ethics. And also the Greeks. So people in, in humanist culture, they do not necessarily deny God as a um, deity or a, as as something to derive morality from. But since it's absent, you kind of have to figure out how to live life without um, having to ask God or look towards the scriptures to see what is the right thing to do. I think it's interesting within the purview of Christianity and religion, the range of emphasis on is God the most important thing for us to focus on all the time, or is God a like a cloud in the sky above us that we're always aware of, but it's not the focal point that we're working with most of the time. Yeah, it, it would it used to be that everything was centered around God during the um, medieval age and now they kind of got away from that and look towards other other sources of reason why and how we should live life and one of not necessarily one of the first people but one of the most famous people to to look at the Christian doctrine and go well this this is we're not doing it right was Martin Luther in Germany or it was it wasn't Germany back then it was well doesn't matter so um, Luther was a a priest and he was a scholar for a long time and he decided that some of the teachings of the Christian church were not what the original scripts talked about. And he famously had his 95 
different theories about 95 different theses about what the Christian or what the Catholic Church is doing wrong and hang those to his church wall, uh, to his church door and wanted to engage people with him in a conversation about what we're doing wrong and how we're doing it wrong might do different going forward. At a similar time, there was also a reformation effort in Zurich, Switzerland. And this was by another priest called Huldrych Zwingli in Zurich. And this is important to mention just because it has such an awesome name and an awesome story behind it. The event was called the Affair of the Sausages. Of the Sausages? Yes. So this was during Lent time, Lent being the time where you refer from eating certain products between Easter and yeah, what's Lent. the other one? Yeah. Um, sausages. I didn't hear about sausages. So uh, Twingley was arguing at a big Lent festival that people ought to be allowed to eat sausages, which was blasphemy at the time, because the Catholic Church told us not to eat any meat during Lent. And Twingley said, well, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to do that. Actually, there's things in the Bible that tell us the opposite of that. And therefore, eat sausages all you like. Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. God didn't say we can't drive 160 miles per hour. That means that we can. Amen. Yeah. So he argued that fasting should be voluntary, not mandatory. So if you don't want to eat sausages during Lent, that's okay. But if you want to eat sausages, it'd be the wrong thing to sustain from eating sausages just because it's Lent. I don't know what the traditional, like, actual strict rules of Lent are. Basically, my Protestant's perspective is during that period of time, you give up one thing of your choosing that you feel like would allow you to practice that restraint and self-control. That could be swearing for some people who swore a lot. I would joke with some other kids in middle school and high school that I was giving up swearing, but I never used swear words anyway, so it was kind of funny. I was about to ask if you just could give up something that you don't normally do anyways. Yeah. They wouldn't really say that that was a helpful use of Lent. They would recommend something else. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So Luther took issue with um, one main theme that the Catholic Church kind of had been running with for the last six, seven hundred years, which was that the Pope is the main spokesperson of God on earth and therefore has supreme power over everything. And this historically is based on a document called the Donation of Constantine. It dates back to the the Emperor Constantine, which was in 400 after Christ, but it was a forgery made in 
900 after Christ and was highly debated even at the time. But we first were certain that it was a forgery in 1430. So they, they had conclusive proof that this wasn't a real document. They just made up that Emperor Constantine at the time told the Pope that, well, I might be the emperor of everything on, on the planet, at the time at least, <laughs> or uh, to his understanding. Um, but I will give you, the Pope, supreme power over everything. So I, I put you above myself, which is a nice document to forge. Yeah, if you're the Pope. I kind of <laughs> see why they would do that. Yep. And this document was used as a legitimation of the church's power throughout history. So from its forgery roughly in 900 until the late 15th century. So even after it was considered a, or it was known that it was a forgery, it was still used successfully, which is also kind of nice. There, there's something to be said about the weight you have in your arguments if you have the power uh, in the first place. It's like, yeah, this is how it is. But yeah, no, no, no. I told you this is how it is and I hold the power. So what are you going to do about it? Forge a new document. <laughs> so... Luther took issue with the Pope in the first place, and then with a lot of different practices, um, specifically the practice of having to give money to the church to absolve you of sin, which was a big thing, especially during the Crusades. So at some point, the Pope, uh, don't remember his name, he absolved all the crusaders of their sins. So you could go to holy war and do whatever you wanted to do to the locals in Jerusalem and you'd be absolved of sin afterwards. So it was a free for all. Get out of hell free cards being handed out. Anyone who goes to the crusades, you might say, hey, that's murder. You're killing people. It's okay. We got you a free pass guaranteed. Get out of hell free card. Yeah. Speak to your local friar for more details. Yeah, so we're going to go through Luther's um, 95 Theses. I guess not all of them, but just to, to have an overview over what he was thinking. Um, do you have the link open? Do you want to read some of these as well? Sure, I can open that up in just a sec. So the preamble was, out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed and defended at Wittenberg. Under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Masters of Arts of the Sacred Theology and Lecturer in, ordin in Ordinary on the same at the place. Wherefore he requests that those who are unable to present and debate orally with us to do so by letter. So he put up these 95 theses and wanted people to discuss them with him. It wasn't like, all right, this is what I say and this is how it's supposed to be. This is 
the quarrel I have with the Catholic Church. Let's discuss them. Mm-hmm. And it starts out when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So repent um, is common translation for it. It's if you feel bad or if you do something for the sins you have done, like in Penance. Catholic Church. Yeah. In Catholic Church, you had to tell the priest what you did wrong, and then he told you to go do a, a bunch of prayers in order to repent for your sins and hopefully get into heaven. When Jesus said repent, he meant not to repent for something specifically, but just to to live in repentance. So it, you should um, exist in a state of constant guilt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's a good way to put it. So this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administrated by the clergy. So he said that you can't just go and do something for what you did wrong and then expect a good result out of that. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outwards mortifications of the flesh. So you also, you shouldn't just repent by yourself. And it basically it should, what you did wrong last time should reflect on your actions going forward, which is a concept that we kind of had before in history. I think this should resonate with people that have listened to other uh, Philosopher Clock episodes. I can hit number four and five. Yeah. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, that is, true inner repentance, namely till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So... uh, our sins remain until we enter heaven. Yeah, it makes sense because we are flawed uh, by Christian doctrine and kind of cursed with original sin. As a Christian, that's something that I always kind of felt was a little bit unfair is that everyone gets punished for Adam and Eve's mistake. But I think that mistake was supposed to be indicative of flawed human nature where we are prone to make mistakes, life is complicated, we don't have a perfect, steadfast, righteous will, we're going to slip up here or there. Yeah, I question the morality of the decision of um, creating something, um, realizing that it goes wrong um, very, very early on, and instead of just shutting it down and trying a new, just letting it run wild. Mm-hmm. But that's how we came into existence, according to Christian theology. So it was the original sin that Adam and Eve, which wasn't necessarily fruit-related, as it's told in the uh, PG-13 version. So it was something different they did that kind of pissed off um, God at the time. 
Um, but there's original sin that is still with us, as you said. So, number five. The Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties expect those imposed by his own authority or that one of the canons. So, the Pope cannot absolve you of sin unless he imposed sin on you. So, if he told you that what you do is sinful, he could absolve you from it by telling you it's not sinful, which is... Is that so a sort of precedent-setting thing where he has to be consistent with that? I so think it's more so... Excuses someone for murdering somebody, then murder is okay for everybody? I, I think it just says that the Pope is not the spokesperson of God, so the Pope speaks for himself or for the Catholic Church. And if the Catholic Church told you something is wrong, the Catholic Church could also tell you something is right. But it doesn't make it objectively right or wrong. Objectively in this sense being what God told us to be right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Number six. The Pope cannot remit, forgive any guilt except by declaring and showing it has been remitted by God or to be sure by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission, forgiveness, in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. This is like the forgiveness rule book. Yeah, it's, it's really like you have to look at it this way. Luther was looking at the text and at uh, Christian doctrine or the canon, canon meaning something that was made up by the council of the church. And he was looking at these rule sets and kind of going, well, this this ought not to be this way. So he was um, specifically taking quotes and changing the quotes into what he thought would be the right thing. Or he was um, quoting them in order to tell, well, this is kind of wrong. So he, he was very much in, in line with the scholastic method of looking at a text and looking at it critically but he was arguing against the catholic church and for the original texts which is you didn't want to piss off the catholic church at the time so it's he wasn't the first one to do this but he was the first one to do this with a big success rate so there were other priests before him that kind of questioned the catholic church but they kept it low-key because with the Inquisition in town, it's it's not the wisest thing to do. Yeah, it's always dangerous being a critic of those in power. I think there are a lot of examples outside of religion as well, like Russia having lots of cases of people who are very critical of the government disappearing and that kind of thing. But this is the religious capacity of that, is you may have legitimate issues, being within the faith and i certainly felt a lot of those maybe similar emotions to martin luther as a christian and you realize there are some major problems with organized religion like that's really worth talking about if you want your faith and your church and your people to all be as righteous and pious as they should be you want to fix the systemic problems and a big church certainly has a lot of problems 
And there's a big difference to be made between faith and religion, like religion being an institution and faith just being the belief in something that might or might not be based on a religious institution. Mm. Okay, so um, seven. I want to address one thing that is said in chat which is not as nice a thing to say but christianity isn't stupid it's based on other religions with very similar um codes of ethics that came before it and the abuse of power by the church was definitely wrong but the christian ethic as in of itself is pretty solid for the most part and we still live by Christian ethics in in Europe and the United States. So we didn't get far away from that ethic. We changed some of the things around. We don't look towards the original text as much anymore to, to guide us with our decisions. But we're still very much embedded in that Christian ethic. Yeah, the difference between Christ and Christians is one that is highlighted a lot. I think Gandhi has a famous quote, I like your Christ, but not your Christians or something. <laughs> Meaning the difference between you could establish in theory, a perfect ethical or moral code and have that as part of a religion. And people will not be able to maintain that and perfect that unless you have some magical method or some divine process that happens. You need a good noble lie in order to enforce it. Yeah. Um, the other thing about having a perfect ethic uh, system, it's a concept that has come up uh, again and again. It was most recently, um, what was his name? A American scholar that he was proposing that a computer an algorithm could perfectly predict ethic behavior given enough input and given the input of what people believe to be right and what how that would um, turn out and it's an interesting proposition i think it's really difficult to make because what what are we looking at in terms of threshold of ethical behavior? So for example, um, is stealing always wrong? Or if it's okay to steal if you otherwise would starve to death? I think that's uh, uh, an example that people can relate to. So if there's a certain amount of stealing that is okay, another amount of stealing is not okay, where's the threshold between that? And what amount of people would need to think something to be okay in order for it to be okay so if we're in a situation where it's 51 against 49 percent the efficacy efficacy is kind of questionable so where to where an algorithm would establish those thresholds would it would be a weird proposition to just have a computer tell us what is right and what is wrong is what i'm trying to say yeah also the notions of right and wrong continually change over time there are a lot of things people did even 20 years ago that might have seemed kind of normal and funny. And now they're very uncouth and kind of cruel and 
whatnot. So norms change over time. The AI yeah, it, would have to learn too. It's in a fluid state and we're and many degrees are getting better or getting more humanitarian over time, especially in the last 200 years since the automation and the industrial revolution. So since we have more time to think about things, since we have more overproduction of goods and therefore more safety in what we do, we've been steadily going towards a more humane society for the most part. There's still a lot of things going wrong, but we're, we're on a good path, I'd say. Steven Pinker's book, The Surprising Decline in Violence. We have tended to get nicer over time, it seems. Basically, yeah. as our quality of life increases, we value life, generally speaking, more, and it makes us less violent and aggressive and desperate and all that. And also kindness, I think, is on the rise. Kindness and wholesome behavior to each other. Yeah, and I think we're in a really interesting time right now where these values will either show more or show less over time. I think it will be interesting whether or not countries will go a bit more nationalist in their approach towards um, fighting the pandemic or if if there's a overabundance of medical stuff, things like that, if countries start helping each other out and we're trying to solve this globally more so than on a nationalist um, agenda. And I think we're already seeing some really nice efforts to that regard by countries helping each other out and figuring out the problems with each other and trying to solve it the best way possible. There was a point related to the rise of new atheism with Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, uh, kind of in response to the authoritarian right wing, basically Christians in government wanting a Christian America. And now a lot of Christians feel like they are a counterculture. I think that largely depends on what region of the United States you're in, because if you're in the South, the Christians are a strong majority. In some places like Seattle, for example, it's extremely liberal, so a lot of Christians do feel on the back foot, like Seattle has moved on from Christianity and they're the resistance that remains. Whereas when we lived in Texas, pretty much everyone that we knew was Christian. So it was just out of the norm to not have that stance. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if there was a push towards the, uh, from the United States towards being more Christian if they could agree on what that would mean. Because there's so many different flavors of Christianity and so many different ways to interpret Christian uh, doctrine that it could go many different directions. I had an argument with a nice old lady once that told me that I should um, consider reading the Bible some more and looking at what God tells me in order to inform my beliefs. And I told her, well, if I was looking at the Bible, I think that the times that preceded the um, Enlightenment was kind of the better interpretation uh, of what the Bible says than what we're doing nowadays. 
So the Bible at times is really harsh towards people it disagrees with. And in the Middle Ages, they took care of that accordingly. And nowadays we're just having this laissez-faire Christianity where if you're if you disagree with certain parts of the Bible, it's okay to disagree with that. Which is, I don't want to argue we should go back to, to medieval times, but I'm trying to say it was more uh, consequent Christianity back then than it is nowadays. Yeah, the fun terms we have are cherry-picking the Bible or being a shopping cart Christian where you go through the Bible and the stuff that you like that sounds good to you and kind of serves how you want to live, you put that in your cart. And there's some stuff, ah, I don't really like that rule. Uh, let's not take that. And you just go past. Yeah. It makes sense, though. I guess it, it's normal behavior to to pick the, the things you like and, and choose to ignore the others. Yeah. Well, no one's going to read the Bible equally for all the sections because the texts within the bible are not all written in the same style like it's not a book like jk rowling wrote and all of it is her voice her sentence structure her style uh, it varies a whole bunch and some of it is just really dry lists of stuff this person was this person's dad and he had the wife of this and two cousins and this person and this person had this kind of hair and he wore these pants and he had a wife and this many kids i mean you're not going to like pour over that in the deep of the night trying to discover more about the faith by reading the lineage maybe someone did but <laughs> the bible is not all exciting stories the exciting stories they tell in sunday school are more of the spicy bits yeah i think they make for better storytelling like than just having a list of people and who was the father of whom and why um like the the stories, and we talked about this when we talked about the different realms of gods, that how important storytelling is in human history and how important it is for us to inform our morals and beliefs through stories. And since there wasn't much in terms of literacy, most people would learn um, how to behave and what to believe in through two different stories that the pastor at the time or their parents, grandparents told them. So storytelling is hugely important in human history. And we are a, for the most part, an oral culture. And this only changed in the last hundred years or so that we really got widespread literacy and people were able to read. And we were still, for the most part, an oral culture, but because we're nowadays just listening to the TV instead of reading. So we, we get informed on what to believe, how to see the world, mainly through listening. And this will likely remain to be the case for the next couple of centuries, if not millennia, if we make it that long. Um, so we did six. Yep, number seven I can get. God remits guilt to no one unless at the same time he humbles him in all things and makes him submissive to the vicar, the priest. I've never seen that word before. 
Um, yeah, it's it's synonymous. It's the the head of the local church. So it's it's like there could be a couple of priests within one church, but one of them was the high priest, and this was the wicker. Um, I'm gonna take a really quick bio break, and you can cover eight or nine or however far you can go. Sure. Number eight. The penitential canons are imposed only on the living, and according to the canons themselves, nothing should be opposed upon the dying. But sir, he needs to do his penance. Stop it, man. You, don't you see him? He's literally dying. <laughs> he can't do his penance now. He's struggling to breathe. But my lord, he should praise the lord. No way. He needs to wins. He needs to rest. Okay, number nine. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, acting through the Pope, is kind to us, insofar as the Pope, in his decrees, always makes exceptions of the article of death and necessity. Man, can they phrase this in more lofty ways? I don't know. So what does that mean? The Holy Spirit works through the Pope. It's nice to us. The Pope makes exceptions, exceptions when he has to. I can see why Martin Luther would bring some of these up. I read through it and some of it is like, what on the earth is the rule even supposed to be here? And I think part of that is an advantage of the church, right? Is the more confusing and tangled the rule is, the more you can get away with taking whatever ruling you want. Yeah, there's similar things nowadays with the stock market. It's just the more confusing it is, the easier it is to just do whatever you want to do. And it, it's easier than you think to write something that is ambivalent, and it's really difficult to write something clear and make it, all right, this is how it is. But this was what Luther was trying to do, to, to get a sense of where the church was going wrong and how they were doing it wrong and the main theme here is that in order to repent you should repent by yourself there's no one that that could take sin off you other than god so even though the pope might tell you you're absolved of your sin that ought not to be the case and the most important thing here is you should not be allowed or forced to pay to get rid of your sins so what luther was proposing was to for the most part get rid of taxes which is a difficult proposal so pe people that collect the taxes don't normally like if you tell people not to pay them yeah that's gonna create some problems so you're saying luther is a libertarian yeah yeah i think that's a, a, a fair thing to say um, one thing about Luther, he was, during his lifetime, there were some holy wars still, like it was the end of the crusade times. And he viewed the Turks at the time that were attacking Europe as sent by God. So the Turks were a 
God sent to make us pay for the sins of the Christian church. So he was all in favor of the Muslim faith in his early life. And once he had a copy of the Quran and read through the Muslim doctrine, he was very much opposed to it. It's a there's some weird writing of literature where he he talks about how we deserve the, the Turks to to come upon us. And then later on, he's like, well, no, I might have been wrong on that one. <laughs> but yeah, religious wars between Christians and Muslims have been going on for a long time. And there seemed to be a search in that again a couple of years ago. I think we've moved away from that a bit again. But it's there's always been tension and both sides always believed that they were on the wrong, uh, on the right side of history, and what they believed to be right was objectively right, which is a difficult proposal to go into a debate. Yeah. As for my view, I think they were both wrong, and both sides had their fair share of um, bloodshed and. There used to be times where the Christians had the upper hand in who did the worst things and then it changed from one side to the other, but it's both sides are to be blamed, is what I'm trying to say. Yep, and there's definitely overlap in the way the faiths work, because they're both Abrahamic faiths. So they share the common thread of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. So both of them reference Christ. I think Christ is referenced a good bit in the Quran. I haven't read the Quran myself. I haven't either, but in the Quran you have Muhammad, who was similar to a second coming of Christ. So they had a, a another Jesus that came after Jesus, which is something uh, other faiths have as well. So they had a newer version of, um, or a newer translation of what God was trying to tell us. And um, Muhammad made things a bit clearer. So it wasn't, um, you ought to do, it wasn't as ambivalent. This is for the Quran itself. Now in Muslim faith, there's a big problem with, I don't know what they were called, but they're basically second and secondhand sayings of Muhammad. So for example, um, my wife's sisters overheard her husband talk about what the um, what Muhammad said. And he said, you'll get 40 virgin, virgins when you get to heaven as a murderer. And so there's a bunch of these texts where it's allegedly he said this, but we don't really know, and they're pretty disputed among scholars, but based on what kind of Muslim belief you had, they're considered to be religious canons, so there's things you ought to believe in, and for other, like there's only, um, they're called Quranists, they're like, all right, we only stick to the text of the Quran and not all the secondary literature that comes with it. 
And as you said, with the Bible, the Bible as an assortment of different books, different stories, it gets problematic when you have someone selecting which books to follow and which books to include and which parts not to include. Yeah, I don't know if that was a point that you had planned to discuss, but the assembling of the books of the Bible was its own process that happened long after Christ was supposed to exist. So it was a series of documents. Which of these would you put into a big book of all the important stuff? Uh, that was in England, I believe, whenever they did the King James Version. And I think that's one of the main ones we work with now. I think, well, I'm not quite sure on the, the history of this. I think there was the original version that the church in roman times used was a greek version which was pretty terrible in terms of its writing style so they had they reworked that into latin and i'm not sure what parts it included or did not include but the king james version of the bible was based on the latin version as far as i know not the greek version oh i see so it's already a few steps away. And it's even further from original documents. I think a lot of the documents were written about one or two centuries after the life of Christ. So people probably would have hung on to those and then made copies of them at some point. Maybe there were some uh, revisions and changes or mistakes that happened. It's the telephone game, kind of like you said. So I think we were on 9 into 10. I think we're going to uh, skip a couple. So I think we've heard what Luther thought about um, having absolved your sins and the kind of power that the Pope has. So he doesn't take away power from the Pope specifically. So he doesn't argue against the Pope being the highest man in europe because that would be super dangerous like telling people not to pay taxes is one thing telling them that the pope is fake would be something completely different so it's it's already super dangerous but that would have been a death sentence for sure and the next part he talks about our um conception of purgatory so purgatory being the kind of in between heaven and hell where you have to go for a certain amount of time to repent for your sins before you can go into heaven and as we talked about last time purgatory in the medieval sense was largely informed by Dante Alighieri's story of Dante's um, inferno inferno his his way through the nine circles of hell, purgatory, and then heaven. Um, the book is called The Divine Comedy. Although it wasn't as funny. Comedy used to be different, I guess. Yeah, I think there's the film category definition of comedy and then the like classic story definition of what a comedy is. Comedy versus tragedy. These concepts used to be around since Greek times, at least for our understanding as we do tragedy and comedy. So the Greeks informed these two ways of um, doing plays. They had this differentiation and they 
for the most part informed how we still do these two plays, which is kind of interesting. So the, the story structure hasn't changed much since ancient Greek times. So number 16, hell, purgatory and heaven seem to differ the same as despair, fear and assurance of salvation. So hell is despair, purgatory is fear and heaven is the assurance of salvation. It seems as though for the souls in purgatory, fear should necessarily decrease and love increase. So as your soul is in purgatory, um, you get less fearful over time and go more towards love, getting yourself closer to heaven. Yeah, I think for a lot of Christians, purgatory is also symbolic of working through the sins of your life and kind of reflecting and atoning on each of them so that when you do get to heaven you are cleansed and that process yeah. of cleansing involves some pain and reflection and stuff furthermore it does not seem proved either by reason or by scripture that souls in purgatory are outside the state of merit that is unable to grow in love so he argues that it's neither reason nor anything that the Bible would tell us would could make you believe that you're in purgatory, you're not able to change and you're not able to grow larger in love, meaning grow closer to heaven. Mm -hmm. So this was... Um, opposed to the kind of belief that you're in purgatory and you're just waiting your time and it's just like sitting in a prison cell and at some point for no reason someone comes opens the prison cell and you can now go to heaven so the as Luther saw it you had to change within purgatory in order to get into heaven and this subject of change like how we're our own maker and how we at least for some part decides over our own fate is big in protestant belief a lot more so than in the catholic belief where it's for the most part it's faith and it's kind of the goodwill of god that will make you end up in one of these three places you've heard of heaven you've heard of purgatory and you've heard of hell but have you heard of heck Heck is hell light. The punishments are there, but they're not really that bad. <laughs> Spend your eternity in heck. Yeah, interpretations of the afterlife are really interesting to me. There are so many different ones. It's fun to hear about. I know what your choice afterlife is if you're going by the Christian rules. You want to go to the upper part of hell where all the thinking people are. <laughs> Exactly. Um, for myself, I really find the notion in Buddhism really nice. Although I, I don't believe in rebirth, but looking forward towards nothingness, where you're okay with you just not existing anymore, is something I can really romanticize. So if you live the life that was what you wanted it to be, and you're okay with not being alive anymore, not being anymore. And that would be death. I think that's really romantic in a sense. Also really scary. But not being as a goal is a 
a nice goal more so than having an eternity of whatever because eternity is really long yep, most people don't really think about that eternity could be its own punishment in a way we think of it as a reward because we're bumping up against mortality which does seem shorter than we would like assuming you have a pretty decent life if you have a terrible life mortality can be a release but yeah living for a thousand years would have a whole bunch of problems you know how you have maybe some grandparents who are really out of touch and don't know how to use electronic devices imagine that but a thousand years it seems like it'll be pretty hard to consistently keep pace with the way things change yeah but i think that got a lot worse in the last two three hundred years so if you lived a thousand years ago or let's say two thousand years ago the last thousand years thousand years wouldn't have meant as much change as the last 50 years did now so we're really going at a fast pace these days for mm -hmm. better or for worse we're in the knee of the curve right now so i think we were on 16 to 17. Uh, it seems as though. Oh, yeah. It seems as though for the souls in purgatory, fear should necessarily decrease and love increase. So it's the the. I think I did. I won already. Ah, we're at nineteen now. Um, nor does it seem proof that souls in purgatory at least not all of them, are certain and assured of their own salvation, even if we ourselves may be entirely certain of it. So this is the other notion that since you have to change in purgatory and you're not just locked up in there with a certain sentence, you have to change your being in order to get into heaven. There's the possibility of just being stuck there because you didn't change, you didn't repent enough in order to get into heaven. So it's not really so much getting a uh, a win with some punishment conditions, it's more like the game goes into overtime and you still have to earn your spot in heaven from there. Yeah. Okay, so it's more like a second driving test rather than waiting in line at the DMV to sign some papers. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> Exactly. We have to sit in this very boring office for a thousand years and they will call your name. Oh, shit. <laughs> That's some really cruel punishment. <laughs> this is hell, isn't it? It is. Just tell me. Yeah. Therefore, the Pope, number 20, when he uses the words plenary remission of all penalties, does not actually mean all penalties but only those imposed by himself. Why don't he just say some penalties? <laughs> um, so I was looking up a bunch of different translations of this. So the original was written in Latin. So I think we're, we're well off having an English translation. And this was as good or as up-to-date a translation that I could find. So there's a lot, a lot of them that are worse. This one is as direct and as clear as it gets, which says something about the translation work. Yeah, and as you talked about with the translation of the 
Bible, like how you translate something and what word you use for in its translation, it makes a big difference. Uh, I've got a good example here and I wonder uh, how you feel about this. Um, so Luther and um, came together and they wanted to unionize or to organize the Protestant belief. So they brought the two uh, guys together to kind of argue out their disagreements. And this didn't go over well. So as it were, Luther believed that the communion, so the little bread piece you get in the Catholic Church, um, was the body of Christ. Oh my goodness, I have a story. <laughs> and Zwingli was believing this was just metaphorically the body of Christ. And they had an argument about this subject and couldn't agree on it up until the point where Luther started yelling um, the original sentence that um, Jesus allegedly spoke at the last dinner, which was could translate to see this. Uh, Swingley said, well, the term you use here, uh, est, or this is my body, should be translated this represents my body. So this was their main argument and they agreed to disagree and yeah, they never were able to consolidate that. So I don't know if you had the stream open before we got started, but I did date someone who was Catholic when I was about 16. And we had this debate multiple times. So this is one that I'm very familiar with and it's really fun. Basically speaking, for the cracker and the wine they give you at church, is that actually the flesh and blood of Christ or does it represent it? For Protestants, for us, it's a no-brainer. Like, it's a cracker. I just had it. It's a cracker. And this is wine or grape juice, as a lot of the Baptist churches will give you instead of wine because Baptists have their own thing with alcohol. That's kind of a different story. But I was curious about it because my girlfriend at the time really believed that it was the flesh and blood of Christ. Like, that's what it is. And I was thinking, well, maybe at her church it is different. Like, maybe I'm just getting basic grape juice and a cracker, but they're actually flesh <laughs> and blood, and it's, like, really intense. So I went to her church one time, and she was there doing their service, like Catholic Mass and stuff, which I'm not as familiar with. It's very different in format. There's a lot of ping post of the priest says something, and then everyone echoes back. And more of the things are memorized. There's less improv. Uh, Protestant churches, more average, have more improv stuff. It's more modern. They have a rock band and things like that. So the Catholic mass is going, and my girlfriend is involved in some ceremony because she's moving toward confirmation, which is a major checkpoint yeah. in a Catholic's faith. And I'm sitting next to her mom, and I'm a Protestant kid. And I ask her, whenever the communion is being taken, am I allowed to have it? Because I'm a Christian, but I'm a Protestant, not a Catholic. Do I pass the test? Do I qualify? And she said, you know what? You seem like a nice boy. When you go up there, <laughs> they're going to say the body of Christ 
and you echo back the body of Christ. And then they say the blood of Christ and you say the blood of Christ and then you have it. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went up and I had it and it was a piece of bread actually. And it was wine, <laughs> which shocked me because I was pretty young and having wine at church seemed really taboo from a Protestant perspective, but I had the wine and it wasn't blood. It didn't even taste anything like blood. And then later I told her that I did that and she was really pissed because apparently <laughs> I was not qualified to have it and I shouldn't have done that. But I felt like I won the debate of it's not actually flesh and blood. I just tested your own stuff. <laughs> you can't fool me. But yeah, that's a, that's a fun one that has happened for millennia and now also happened for me. Yeah. It, it's an interesting debate and I've never thought about it that way. Like for me, it was always just a representation because as you said, it doesn't taste like blood. It doesn't taste like flesh. So it ought to be some kind of representation. So there wasn't much ambiguous around that for me, even growing up as a Catholic, mm -hmm. where it should have been literal blood and uh, body of Christ. But as I said, we were not raised very strictly in a Catholic manner it's just more like this was the church that we go to more so than the other one those three times a year that we actually go to church i don't know if this is necessarily true people in the chat can correct me or you can but it seems like european catholics and christians seem more chill and moderate than american ones which seem more fundamental um, yeah, we'll be talking about that a bit more in depth next time. But basically, the Reformation happened at a time where the colonization of the United States happened. So there were a lot of extreme people of extreme beliefs that left Europe because they didn't see their values represented anymore. And they went to the United States due to uh, their the freedom of religion that was guaranteed when you get there. And therefore it makes sense that generations later even, there are people of more extreme faiths living in the United States than there are in Europe where the Protestants and Catholic, um, although they fought quite a bit and did so in a very bloody manner for 30 years, um, since then, they kind of got along, they grew together, they realized, well, the other are just um, a bit different. They believe some weird things, but then again, don't we all? But for my parents, and they're in their 60s now, so my father, his parents were rather religious, or his mother was, as I uh, later realized. and. So they were strong, or she was a strong believing Catholic. So it was a hard thing for her to swallow that he chose to marry a Protestant girl. So this was 40 years ago. So we haven't come as far since the 16th century. So there's still some tension, but it grows lesser over time. One of my jokes that I made that's a Christian StarCraft joke is when a viewer asked in the chat, 
Nero, can you merge a Dark Templar and a High Templar to make an Archon? And I replied, can you marry a Protestant and a Catholic? And they didn't know. That just... <laughs> thing. And they're like, actually, I don't know. Are you allowed to do that? <laughs> From no, my you, general you, you... perspective, generally you can, but there's going to be grumpy family members, kind of like your case. Yeah. So for the longest of time, this wasn't a possibility. And as with many other faiths, religions, that you're only allowed to marry within that faith. Um, I have a friend of mine that um, conformed to Islam in order to um, marry his girlfriend. Hmm. And he's not a strong believer in the faith. I think he, he sees some good values in the faith, but he's not a, a strong believer in it. But he said he, he loves the girl and it's important to him. And since it's important to her and especially her family that he, he's a Muslim in order to marry her, he was he wanted to do that for her and for them being together, which I think is a nice sentiment. I mean, that definitely at least expresses a level of dedication if you're willing to pick up a belief system. Bonus points that he likes some of it, too. The, as we said, it's very similar in terms of most of the ethics. Um, one thing that is a lot more underlined in the Muslim faith than it is in the Christian faith is to help others and to um, like the the social aspect of living in a community and how you should take care of the elderly you should take care of the poor people and how to organize a society around that is a lot more underlined in muslim faith than it is in christian faith which isn't to say that it isn't in christian faith as well yeah because charity is one of the pillars of islam yeah so I would agree there's some really nice sentiments in Muslim faith as well. And as with other religions, there's some problematic stuff in there. But as far as I know, a lot of it comes from those secondary from the secondary literature and not from the Quran itself. But as far as I know, not being a believer in the Quran is not seen in the best of lights. Then again, that's the same in the Christian faith. So non-believers are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this sense, for Catholics, Protestants are non-believers and vice versa. So they're just, they might believe some of the right things, but since some of the things are the wrong things, they're um, heretics. Christianity is pass-fail, I guess. Um, yeah, so we had the um, arguing against having to pay to get rid of your sin. Then we had the common beliefs about purgatory and how they might be going wrong. And then we have number 17, where he starts talking about that we we can't know about the state we're in in purgatory 
and then he goes back again to how we should not um, be allowed or be made to be to pay for having to go to purgatory or not go to purgatory um, then he starts talking about how the indulgence of priests uh, of priests and preachers um, made this the case that were um, making new things sins in order to have people pay for them so it, it talks specifically about the abuse of the Christian church in order to make money which is good business model might not be ethical to do but it, it's good business and to some degree that has its own efficacy so if you're able to make good money off of something is it really wrong yeah, the recent one that came up with that was really important drugs within the pharmaceutical industry that are fairly cheap to make, but if you control the production of them and people desperately need them, you can make the prices super high. If you can do that, should you do that? If it's at the cost of human life and health? A lot of yeah, people it, it know. <laughs> it depends on who you have to um, report to. Like if you have to report towards your shareholder and your duty is to make as much money as possible, it's definitely the right thing to raise prices as much as is reasonable. So as long as insurance companies and private citizens are able to pay for it, um, it's good business to do so. So it's the moral thing in that sense to do it. At some point you raise prices too high where um, you have a decrease in making money because too many people die because they can't get the medication. So that's the kind of breaking point of how far you can go with raising the price. And yeah, obviously this is seen uh, as immoral by the people having to pay the price, but it, it really depends on who you have to answer to. I hope that if you have to answer God, he wouldn't see this in the best of lights. And there's um, ample of examples in the church that you ought not to be um, charging the wrong price. You should not have um, extra money that you have to pay back towards to your lenders, for example. So there's... Um, Jesus, the way he argued, was very much in a sense that we should have more social justice and there should be less abuse of people in power. And this definitely is a good example of abuse of power because you can just do what you want with the drug prices. Yep, that's not very cool. That also goes to the point, too, of what is the point of life if not to gain power and profit? Because giving someone a drug for cheap and allowing them to survive, that's a really big thing, but it doesn't show up in your bank account. Like You can't build a monument in that same way to your success. But many people would say that that is the better thing to do. That's the high road and the righteous track but it doesn't have as flashy of a payoff at the end similar to putting content on your youtube channel but it's not the primary 
people say, you're destroying your channel. But if you release the patent of this very important technology, then you're not going to make all the money that you could have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's a balance to strike. Like, you, you don't want to give things for free if you cannot afford to give them for free but you don't want to overcharge people for it like you there ought to be a a good reward for doing something good but you should not ask for more than it's due keep things reasonably priced exactly trying to find where he's kind of gets away from the um, notions of indulgence because like mainly all his 95 theses were around the notions of indulgence why we shouldn't be forced to pay indulgence and how we um, start to um, develop the wrong moral system based on knowing we'd be able to just pay off for our sins and this was the the main force behind um the reformation belief is that you're you shouldn't just um put off your moral beliefs because you're able to pay off for your sins but you should be your own guide of how to live life and how to be a good person and since this is the only thing that will change where you go in the afterlife so it's not um how much money you could raise to pay off for all the um wicked things you did but it was how how well of a life you lived which is very similar to the Zoroastrian belief of you making the difference in the fight between good and evil a single grain of rice can tip the scale. Maybe it's you. Yeah. Do you want to go through some more of these? Or I think we've seen... Ah, this is a good one. Uh, number 77. To say that even St. Peter, if he were now Pope, could not grant greater graces, mercies, is blasphemy against St. Peter and the Pope. So this is another notion in the reformant movement that the um, people that were seen as holy people in the Catholic Church um, were not necessarily as holy as they might have been. So in the case of St. Peter, I think he's seen as a saint even in the Protestant Church, but then there's some other less holy, holy people that the Protestant Church just denies to have any any kind of holiness to them and in this case he said that if you'd argue that saint peter would have a higher power than the pope you're doing a blasphemy against both saint peter and the pope at the same time and what he's actually saying is the only um, point of reference or the only one that could actually judge what we're doing and granting us mercy is god so no amount of holy will make you a a stand-in for God in that sense. You can be the holiest person on the planet, but that does not make you God. 
exactly. I did a similar thing uh, format-wise to this. I didn't challenge Christianity or whatever, but there was a structure in place at the uh, clothing store I worked at. It's part of a big company with Armani Exchange. I guess I can say that doesn't matter. Um, I worked there and they had an incentives program where it would reward people based on the amount of sales that they got. And the idea was uh, you get the people to hustle more and then they make some extra money by virtue of selling more stuff to the customers. I listed off a bunch of different reasons why this wasn't fair. And then I posted the papers in everybody's lockers so all the other employees could see like how this was a unfair system. Basically, if you have a work shift during peak time, you're going to have orders of magnitude better results than people who work at less busy hours, even if you're like, by your skill, a crappier salesperson. You're not as good as, at connecting with the clients, with finding stuff that's good for them, with reflecting the brand well. You just happen to be on at active hours. So being able to communicate stuff like that to other people and try to bring up discussion is really important. Uh, what happened with that is they told me, don't do that. You're going to get in trouble and regional people are going to be mad at us. <laughs> Stop doing that. But yeah, being able to bring up those points where just because something is in place in either a religion, a government, a company, whatever, somebody's got to speak up about it. And as we learned with the Spanish Inquisition, sometimes that gets you killed. Yeah. A lot of times that got you killed. Like, Luther was really lucky, as far as I'm concerned. He, he was put on trial for it, but the way he phrased everything, he wasn't... He was arguing the texts and not the people, which made it a lot harder for the church to... Um, to punish him for it. So he was banned from the church. He was banned from certain areas, but they were not allowed to um, crucify him for it. Um, which for the most part, I think was also a political move because it would have been an uproar if they did that even more so than it was already. So they kind of realized, well, we're probably better off just banning him than, than killing him. So we're not going to kill you, but you are an outside Christian now. You're not allowed in any of our fancy buildings. <laughs> and we will generally scowl at you whenever we see you. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to read the last two. I think they're kind of a nice summary of um, what the Protestant belief is about and also what Luther was arguing was going wrong with the Christ, uh, with the Catholic Church at the time. So Christian should Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head through penalties, um, death and hell, and thus be confined of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. So Christians should um, follow Christ out of their own free will. They should not follow out of fear of um, death and hell. They should do so because um, they want to get into heaven out of their own free will. 
and not out of a false sense of security that would be given if you pay tribute or pay for your sins. So it's a free choice to want to get into heaven. It's the kind of free will that was um, given to Christian people that you can decide whether you want to be on the good or the bad side. He argued that the good side is defined by God and not by any worldly representative of God. Other than Jesus, I guess. (laughs) So you, you should not be told how to live your life, but you should decide for yourself. And you should follow the teachings of Christ because you see them as the right thing to do, not because you fear the punishment. Mm-hmm. But the punishment is still going to be there. <laughs> of course. Yeah. There's like, they, 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 they set up this, this nice prism or this nice um, reward place to go for, to run for an eternity. So it'd be kind of a waste not to use it. Yeah, that's true. Just be bad business. Yeah, we've got a lot of occupancy in in hell. We need some volunteers. The rent is nice and cheap. Um, There was a joke going around um, about someone super holy uh, getting into heaven. So he he meets a bunch of people and then there's a ringing of a bell and he he's told that it's now dinner time so he goes to the place where they serve dinner and it's salad it's just there's no warm food he was like well i I was expecting more out of heaven and they tell him well for these couple of people that come here we're not going to start a hot kitchen (laughs) it's pretty good Yeah, so this kind of concludes part one of the Reformation, where we looked at the the factors that came beforehand and what the Protestant beliefs were. And next time we'll be looking at what changed in society due to those new belief systems, um, what the, how the Catholics and Protestants fought this fight out. And they didn't do it in a nice case. They didn't just sit on a table and argue about the issues. And yeah, if you have any questions, post them in chat so I can answer if there's something you'd like to know. Uh, Otherwise, I think this is a nice length for an episode. And we had a bunch of good information on protestants and catholics in my opinion hell yeah excuse me heck yeah (laughs) (laughs) always good having you on sir looking forward to the next one i do think this thursday time slot is pretty good we did talk about doing it on the opposite days of DD. so thursday 9 p.m pacific time we have wayfarers that's every other week on the weeks between i do music discussion with apoptosis and the difference between those scheduling wise is music discussion takes half as long, if not a little bit less. So that should be a little bit snappier of a transition from one thing into the next. 
So what, what time? Staying safe and doing well, sir. What, what, what time do you usually finish the music discussion? Probably eleven or midnight uh, Pacific time. I don't think we ever had one that went past eleven. It's usually all within right. two hours because we do two albums and we listen all the way through and talk a little bit between. Yeah, so I will shoot to do part two of the Reformation next week um, around midnight. I think that would fit well into my schedule. Sweet. Well, sounds good, my dude. We will see you on the next episode of Philosophy Clock with that Jay Fatum here, part of the voice of Neuro. GG.